You're listening to the Grace Point Northwest podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Grace Point Northwest is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. Now we hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday gathering. Hey, if you got a Bible, go ahead and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll dive in there in a bit. My name is Travis. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to be with you this morning. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one, as you leave here today, feel free to stop by at Centerpoint. We have free Bibles there in English and in Spanish. But in the meantime, you can follow along on the side screens. The text that we'll be covering today will be up there. Today, we're going to be starting a new series in 1 Corinthians called Relationally Challenged. You see, like the church in Corinth, we're inevitably going to find ourselves in challenging relationships even within the church. Why is that? It's because you and I, whether we like to admit it or not, deal with sin. Who in here has dealt with sin in their life? If your hand didn't go up, you're a liar. Welcome to the party, right? All of us in here have dealt with sin. Let me explain. I'll never forget when a friend of mine called me out on my sin. It was painful and it's still painful to even remember it today. But I will tell you, I'm thankful for it because if my friend didn't call me out on this, I promise you, I would not be where I am with Jesus today if he didn't do that. You see, it was several, several years ago, I was leading a camp, a summer camp of about 250 students. And so here I was, it was my first time leading a camp. And to be honest with you, I was extremely overwhelmed. I was 24 years old and I was in charge of the safety and discipleship of about 250 plus first through fifth graders. Now, some of you in here are going, that sounds like a nightmare. And I'll be honest with you, at times it was. You see, over the course of that week, there were students getting sick. There were students getting homesick. There were students getting injured for some of the most ridiculous reasons. I'll never forget this kid walking up to me, and he had this burn mark around his neck. And I asked him, what in the world happened to you? He said, oh yeah, this guy in my cabin, he's from Arizona. He's an amateur rodeo guy. And so I was running around and he was lassoing me with his lasso around my neck. And I'm sitting there going, that kid needs to be sent home. Like, I'm just like, what do we do with this? This kid thought it was absolutely hilarious. And I'm sitting there thinking, how in the world am I going to explain this to his mother? I had another leader who was highly allergic to peanuts, had to give herself an EpiPen shot because rain started pouring down and the camp thought it would be a good idea to call in all of the students into the theater and then start handing out these like airline package sizes of peanuts all over the place. I remember her looking at me go, what do I do? And I just told her, run. And she did. She ran throughout, through the rain, everything, and she still ended up having to take a shot. But not only was that going on, we had technology issues like you wouldn't believe. I mean, the projector was going out. The speakers were going out. My drummer for our band decided about Wednesday of that week, because he was bored, just to up and leave. And so here we are about Thursday of this week, And things are just starting to pile up on me. And I just could not take any more. My wife was on the trip. She was a leader. And she walked up to me. And we just happened to be in front of a bunch of people. And she asked me if I would help her with something. Now, in that moment, I couldn't take any more. And I snapped. I yelled at her. I said, if you want this taken care of, you're going to have to take care of it yourself. And with that, she graciously walked away. And I went on about what I was doing. A few minutes later, I had this high school kid walk up to me. He said, hey, Pastor Travis, can I talk to you for a second? 
I said, sure, what's up, man? He said, I just don't think it was really right the way you talked to your wife. I mean, she's been here helping us out a lot this week. And I remember looking at him and I asked him what I said because I knew it was harsh, but I couldn't quite remember, but he couldn't forget. I looked at him and I basically said, hold on a second. How long have you been married? Wait a second. You're not married. You're still in high school. What could you possibly teach me about marriage? Nothing. So what do you know anyway? And I walked off. But as I was walking away, I felt this conviction of the Holy Spirit that hung with me all the way to dinner that night. I went up to this young man later and I pulled him aside and I repented. I told him I was sorry for the way I I spoke to him and not only to him, but also to my wife. I asked for his forgiveness. And then I looked at him and I thanked him for what he did. You see, there were so many people who saw me do that, but it was this high school kid this high school kid the only one had the, was the only one who had the courage to call me out. You see, the reason I thanked him is because I learned an important truth that day, that difficult people, problems, and circumstances don't put anything in my heart or even your heart that's not already there. Rather, these things tend to have the habit of what? Exposing what is already existing in our heart. And you see, that confrontation helped me to see that. That's why I don't think I would be where I am in my relationship with Jesus today without that guy. Now this guy is like 28, maybe 30 years old. I can't even remember how old he is. He's, he's older. And still to this day, he's one of my trusted friends. But let me ask you a question. What do you think would have been more loving in that scenario? What if you were there? Would you have challenged me or would you have ignored me? What I would argue, it is more loving to point out my flaw Why is that? Because a good friend, Tim Keller says is this, a good friend is like a good surgeon. They don't cut you to wound you, but rather they cut you to heal you. All of us in this room would think it's unloving. If my kids, I was sitting there watching my kids, and all of a sudden they started to do something that was troublesome, which they rarely do. Yeah, right. And so what if they were doing something that was bad, and I just looked at them and said, you know what? That's really none of my business. You just go ahead and do what you do. I'll stay out of it. Carry on. We'll see what happens. That would be extremely unloving, would it not? It would be absolutely unloving. You see, what we have to do, guys, as Grace Point Church, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have to be there for one another. We have to be willing to graciously deal with the sin in each other's lives, helping each other mature and to grow. Why? Because God does that. You see, in Hebrews 12, 6, it says this, that God disciplines those he loves. It is God-like, if you will, to correct a wayward believer. I love what David Platt says. He says this. He says, be glad God has not left you alone in your sin. Be glad he did not look at us and say, that's your problem. This is the heart of the gospel. In our sin, God comes running after us, and he says, this is not good. So I made a way for you to be forgiven of it, free of it, and to turn from it. That is love. So how do we express true love for one another in our relationships, especially when our relationships are cluttered with sin? I believe it's this, and this is our big idea that Paul wants to get across today. It's this. Mature growth as a disciple of Jesus requires loving discipline from other believers. Let me say it again. Mature growth as a disciple of Jesus requires loving discipline from other believers. That is what Paul is going to share with us today. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, It is actually reported that there is is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. 
For a man has his father's wife. Verse 2, and you thought it was weird in our culture. Listen, and you are arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be what? Removed from among you. Paul clearly tells us that the problem within the Corinthian church dealt with sexual immorality. He specifically says that the immorality consists of a man engaging in a sexual relationship with his father's wife. And somehow Paul finds out about this and it grieves him. It saddens him. Now this week I read so many commentaries on this text because it's not necessarily the softest or the easiest one to preach. And there was so much ink spilled and so many pages spent trying to figure out who this woman is and who this man's father is. And I agree with what many of them were saying, that this is probably not literally his birth mother, but rather it's his stepmother more likely. And I also agree that she's probably not a Christian because there's not a single rebuke in this text towards her. But what about the dad? Some people were speculating that the dad was dead. Maybe the dad divorced her. Regardless, I don't think it's Paul's point. You see, what makes Paul sad here is that this man's behavior was not only widely known in the church, it was tolerated in the church. And this absolutely was disgusting to those in Corinth. And that is surprising because the city of Corinth, what we find here is what? Less accepting of this behavior than the church. And the city of Corinth was known to be a very sexually promiscuous culture, yet this act was not even tolerated there. Within the writings, many of the philosophers, many of the leaders in Corinth publicly were outspoken about how wrong this is. They denounced it. I mean, think about it. If this is wrong in Corinth, how offensive does this have to be? It was so offensive that one scholar said that a relationship between a man in this culture, between a man and his stepmother, was considered incestuous, treated with a sense of outrage and disgust, punishable by deportation to an island. It was highly looked down upon. And instead of the church dealing with it, they're either ignoring it, tolerating it, possibly even celebrating it. But they shouldn't have done this because the scripture is even clear on this. Look what Deuteronomy 27, 20 says. Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's nakedness. And all the people shall say what? Say it. Amen. It shouldn't happen. But you know what's far worse than this man's action? What is far worse than even the city knowing about it? is the fact that the church appears indifferent to it and possibly even supportive of it. I mean, Paul is essentially saying to them, are you still so puffed up? Are you still so proud of your spiritual growth? Ought you not mourn? Don't you see what's going on here? How can, you be t- how can this be taking place amongst those who claim to be spiritually mature? It can't. Don't you see that you guys are still infants in your faith? Years ago, I was talking with a group of high school kids about a friend of theirs. This friend of theirs was uh, struggling with an addiction to drugs. And as we were talking, these students, just with great pain in their voice, started talking about how this guy's destroying his life, he's, he's hurting himself, you know, they're very concerned about his health. And so I looked at him and I said, let me ask you a question. They said, what's that? I said, which of you have talked to him about it? And I'll never forget this one young man. He was almost indignant. He said, talk to him? Why in the world would we talk to him? He'd be so mad, he'd never talk to us again. 
And I remember looking back at them, and I tried to, as lovingly as I could, just said, what you are telling me is you love the friendship more than that friend. That if you truly love this man, this young man, you wouldn't ignore what he's doing to himself. You would lovingly confront him with it. Paul, in another letter, in Galatians 6.1, says this. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression... You who are spiritual should what? Restore him with a spirit of gentleness. He says, keep watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted. I mean, think about what Paul says here in this text. He says that this person is a what? A brother. And that's what we are in the church. That the moment you become a Christian, you don't just get brought into a gathering. You don't just get brought into an event on Sunday. But through Jesus Christ, you were brought into a family. Therefore, because of who we are in Jesus, we are brothers and sisters to each other. And Paul says that this brother in this text is what? He's caught. What is he caught in? An unrepentant, willful pattern of sin. The idea I get is like a a fish with a hook in its mouth being reeled into a boat. That there's no way that they're unable to get free unless what? Paul says, you who are spiritual... That is, you who are mature believers walking in the Spirit, what do you do? You can restore Him. You engage in that sin with Him, not doing it, but rather to pull Him out of it. It's almost as if you're taking the hook out of that person's mouth. Think about what Paul's saying here. It is the responsibility of mature Christians to lovingly help restore Christians who are sinning. Why is that? is because when the church tolerates unrepentant sin, what it shows is they really don't care about three relationships. One, a relationship with God. Two, a relationship with their city and their witness. And then three, a relationship with that person who's caught up in sin. Think about it. Tolerated sin brings dishonor upon who chiefly? God. I ask my kids this all the time at the dinner table when we're doing devotions or at prayers and we start talking about sin. I said, who is sin chiefly against? God. When they crack each other in the face, who is sin chiefly against? God. You look in Psalm 51, what does David say? He says, against you and you alone, O God, have I what? Sinned. And when you understand the backstory of that, of that, that repentant psalm, the fact that David basically looked at a woman, decided to take her as his own, do what he wanted with her, found out she got pregnant and that she was the wife of one of his commanding leaders in his army by the name of Uriah. And so what does he do? He says, well, I got to cover this up. She's pregnant. So he calls Uriah back from the battle and says, here you go. Spend a night with your wife. But he was such an honorable man. He would not dishonor what he was doing. So he stayed outside. And then David goes, I can't cover it up. So what am I going to do? He puts him at the very front of the war so that he dies. And then he takes Bathsheba, which just means Bath, daughter, Sheba, was probably her dad's name, it just means daughter of Sheba, takes her as his wife. And he thinks he got away with it until the prophet Nathan comes and reveals that he is the man. And so Psalm 51 is David's writing to God. And he says, God, against you and you alone have I what? Sin. And me goes, what about Uriah? What about Bathsheba? But what David is saying, yes, it affects those people, absolutely. 
But all sin is chiefly against who? God. It's always against God. And what we see is God does not tolerate sin. What we see in the scriptures is that either we'll pay for our sin or Jesus will pay for it on our behalf. But at the end of the day, sin is going to meet its reckoning. God is going to be just. But unrepentant sin, tolerated sin in the church, not only dishonors God, but it also dishonors the witness. Think about what is going on here. This church was committing such a grotesque act, if you will, that the Corinthians were going, oh, that's nasty. I mean, who in their right mind is going to listen to them preach the gospel and go, oh, you believe that and it leads you to do that? I'm in. Nobody's going to. But then the third thing it does is it really does not care for the one who's caught in the sin. Think about it. Here's this man. He is completely oblivious to the severity of what he's doing. Why? Because everybody around him is ignoring it or accepting it. I mean, how unloving would that be? That'd be essentially like a doctor finding out that you have cancer, but is refusing to tell you that. Why? Because they're concerned about how you would react. Paul says this, let him who has done this be removed from among you. And what is our attitude when that happens? It should be mourning. In the Bible, we see there are different metaphors that describe the church. We see the church is described as a bride. I just unpacked a little bit. The church is described as a family. But we also see in the Bible that the church is called a body. We'll get there in a few months when we get into chapter 12. It's going to talk about the church being a body with Jesus as the head. And guess what we are? We're all the members. But there's the part of the body within the Corinthian church that is out of alignment. How many of you know what it feels like when there's a part of your body that is out of alignment? It's painful. I recently, I think last week, I can't even remember when it was, turned 38 years old. When I turned about 32... So I used to like skate and do dumb stuff when I was a teenager, jumping off walls, all this stuff. And I remember this man coming up to me. He was an older man. I'll never forget it. He goes, you need to take care of your 60-year-old body. And as an 18-year-old, I'm going, whatever, old man. I don't know what he's talking about. I hit 32, and I felt it. I mean, that was wisdom for the ages, right? And so I started to go see this chiropractor, and I found out I had a couple vertebrae almost twisted sideways. When those things were like that, my body was like, help pain, wailing, right? Like, we got to get this fixed. Take that analogy to this church. There's a part of this body, because that's what the church is, that's out of alignment. And rather than dealing with it, what is the church doing? They're being numb. And that's why Paul is not going to allow them to ignore it any longer. He's going to show them how they're to respond. But I want you to listen to how they're supposed to respond. Because our response in church discipline, if you will, in these confronting relationships should always be for the good and joy of the person who's caught in the sin. The focus should always see them restored back to who? Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. For though absent in the body, I'm present in the spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who, has done such a, who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are delivered this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. 
Now, these verses are a little bit difficult to understand, but I think we can grasp Paul's point. What he is saying is, though I am not literally there physically with you, I am there with you in spirit. You may be ignoring this situation, but I have not. Therefore, what does he say he did? He pronounced judgment on this one who did such a thing. And what I appreciate about Paul in this text is not once does he use this man's name. He doesn't necessarily even bring up specifically his sin again. He is not trying to shame the person in their sin. What is he trying to do? Awaken to the church to be the church to address it. He says, because of his apostleship and with the power of Jesus, they are to deliver this man over to Satan. And I will tell you, if we ever get to that point, that's hard. Jesus says in Matthew 18, listen to this. He says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it'll be done for them by the Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. How many of us have heard these verses? I would argue these are some of the most misquoted verses in the entire Bible. I mean, I've heard people use these verses to basically say, out of context, you can essentially get a group of people together, pray for whatever you want, and it's going to come. A Ferrari, a lush bank account, a Golden Knight Stanley Cup, which is still hurtful, is it not? But if we could get two or three people together, we'd be praying all day. Put the cup here, God. Put the cup here, right? I've heard other people say, well, that, it, it means that if you can just get two or three people together then guess what? Jesus is there with you, and that's church. So all you got to do is just get together. Two or three people pray. Jesus is there. My question is always this. What about the time Jesus said, pray in private? Is he not there? I mean, is it almost like Jesus is looking down? Oh, there's only one there. I can't jump into this call until you get two or three others. You see, just like Paul and the text we're in today, the text of Matthew 18, the context of it, is church discipline and excommunication. And what Paul and Jesus are saying is that when you and I have to do the difficult work of lovingly and graciously dealing with an unrepentant sinner, brother or sister in Christ, guess who is going to be with us? Jesus. And I will tell you that is really good news because it is not easy to turn somebody over to Satan. I mean, in the Bible, what is the Satan described as? A prowling lion. What is he described as in John 8? A murderer from the beginning. And that's why you and I need Jesus in these relationship challenges. And what we've got to understand, hear me clearly, that when we take such an act, it is not an unloving thing to do, but it is an extremely loving and tough thing thing to do. Why? Because Paul's purpose for this community discipline is what? This man's salvation. Now, what does it mean that his flesh, the destruction of his flesh? I mean, there were so many different ideas of what this could be. Some people were saying it literally means he's going to die. I mean, you look in Acts chapter 5, Ananias to Sapphira, what happens when they sin? They're dead, right? 
Some people argue that what it's talking about is the destruction of the desire for the sin. Other people talk about it's, it's the weight he feels from being kicked out of the loving fellowship of Jesus. What I would say is it can mean all of this. It can mean all of this. But what we have to understand is that when this happens, we have to see it as loving. When my kids were little, what am I talking about? I even try to do it to them today. Uh, anytime, we, <laughs> my son, anytime I take him to the doctor, I try to get a shot, like for him. And he's just like, I thought you loved me. <laughs> you know, but, but when they were little, we would have to take them to get shots. And they had no idea what was going on. They would sit in my lap, I would hold them tight, and I would allow this mean person to stick this needle in their arm. And that's all they're thinking. And they're looking at me, and when a baby cries, it's not just little trickles. Like I'm talking like the big tears, right? Like we're going to flood the room type bawling. And I'm just holding them, and then I'm borderline going, I'm sorry, you know, like this. And I almost want to just like turn real quick and take it for them, but would it do me any good? No. Why does the needle have to go in his arm? for his good. And oftentimes, somebody who's experiencing this type of relationship challenge, and they're on the receiving end, they're almost like that little kid going, why are you doing this to me? And then what are we doing? We're mourning. And we're saying we're doing it because we love you. We love you. You don't understand the seriousness of your sin. It's killing you. But we love you. And we want your good. We want your joy in Jesus. You see, the point of us doing this is this. So that the person will be convicted of their sin, they'll repent, they'll turn back to Jesus, and what? Be saved on the day of judgment. Listen to what James, Jesus' brother, says in James 5. Listen to this. He says, my brothers, if any one of you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings him back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of what? Sins. You see, the goal of the church community's discipline is always the restoration of that person back to Jesus. It's never, ever to shame them, to embarrass them, to heap like unhealthy, like worldly guilt on them. It's always for that person to be restored. And Grace Point Church Northwest, we have to understand this because a failure to practice church discipline, loving church discipline, is a failure to be faithful to Jesus. Jesus loves his church enough in Matthew 18 to tell us to do this. Paul is saying the same exact thing. You see, the church in Corinth was being unfaithful to Jesus but also they needed to remove this man for their good. Listen to what Paul says, and we got to pick it up. I apologize. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? It says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, Paul is greatly concerned for this church, and they don't really understand how sick they are. They're self-confident, and they're boasting. And what Paul is saying is, quit boasting, you're sick. He uses analogy here of the dangerous effects of sin on a community 
and he uses this concept called leaven. Now, I really have no idea what this was because I can't bake anything. I, I mess up Easy Mac at home. Like, I just cannot cook unless it's an animal, okay? Then I eat a lot of meat. But, but I have a hard time with this. And so I was asking Jess, what is this? And she was telling me how it's like, kind of like a starter. Basically, it's a, a piece of fermented dough that when you apply it to a new lump, it ends up spreading throughout the entire lump, causing the bread to rise up. And what would happen in this culture is when they would make bread, if they didn't clean out all of the bowl, there could be pieces of unleavened bread left in there. And what would it do? It would affect and start to spread throughout the entire new lump. And what it does is it ends up in affecting everything. The best way I knew to understand this was when I was in third grade. And they took this thing out of my body called an appendix. We have no idea what it does really, but if it blows up, it's going to kill us is what I was told at that age. I think now it does something for your immunity. But when I was in third grade, I woke up, I was sick, I had a pain in my side and my back. Mom and dad didn't know what to do. So my dad had the bright idea to take me to the doctor. On the way there, he gave me this big red, big red soda. Some of you are like, what in the world is that? If you're from the South, it's basically a red soft drink. And he said, hey, drink this, it might help. <laughs> And so I get into the doctor's office. I vividly remember this. The doctor's like poking and stuff. I'm like, oh, it hurts. And he looks at my dad and he goes, he, he might be faking. And, and it just couldn't have been more perfect. As soon as he said that, I threw up big bread soda all over him, all over the ground, all over the bed. And then he just said, you need to take him to the hospital. That's just what he said. And so I go to the hospital and they start poking and all this stuff. They find out I have an appendicitis. And so I'm sitting there in third grade going, what's that mean? And they go, you're going to have surgery. And I immediately thought I was going to die. I was like, I'm dead. I remember going to the operating room, and I said, goodbye, Mom. And the nurse leaned in all weird and said, no, it's good night. I was like, you're weird. Leave me alone. <laughs> but what I was told is if they don't take that out, what would happen? It'd get infected, it'd explode, and then what would it do? Go throughout the entire rest of my body. When you take that body analogy of the church and you understand what Paul's saying here with leaven, what's going to happen? It's going to spread throughout all of us. It's going to go everywhere. Paul says you have to cleanse out the old leaven because what are you? You're unleavened. Basically meaning you're saved. Jesus has rescued you. And this is a little bit understand, but I think we can get the concept. He is not telling them to get this person out in order to earn God's grace. He says, what are you? You're unleavened, right? And so since you're unleavened, that's your identity. You're in Jesus. You're set apart for Jesus. Jesus has made you holy Get rid of the unholiness within you. Your position informs your behavior. You don't do the behavior to get the position. When I got married, I was a bachelor with a capital B. I mean, I, I tell you, my room was a wreck. I thought clothes were meant to go on the end of the bed, not into the, the whatever it's called. I still don't know. A basket, right? We had a sink. It was full of dishes because what were sinks for? Not to wash dishes, but to let dishes what? Soak. Breakfast, an acceptable breakfast for me as a bachelor, ice cream sandwich and a soda. And toilet paper in my place went from the bottom up, not the top down, which is a huge no-no. But when I got married, that all changed because when I stood on that stage, and I said, I do to my wife, and she said, I do to me, my reality changed instantaneously. 
No longer was I a bachelor, but now I was a what? Husband. What did I do to earn that? Not a whole lot. I just said I do. And I got a new position. And my position allowed me to progressively grow into the husband I am today. I started to learn, still trying to learn, that clothes go into the basket, not the end of the bed. Dishes, we got these amazing things called dishwashers, right? And they go in. Years ago, just tell you how much I've grown, I'll never forget my wife making fun of me. I was sitting in my living room with my brother-in-law, heard this ding. My brother-in-law goes, what was that? I said, I don't know, it just does that from time to time. Jess was walking down the stairs just at the right time. She goes, Travis, it's called the dishwasher. Maybe if you did it every so often, you figure that out. Boom, start doing some dishes, right? <laughs> so, so what I'm saying is my position was secure, but it was out of the overflow of that position that it modified my behavior. You see, our identity should inform how we behave, but I don't want us to miss the point here. There's a deeply rooted communal aspect to the church. Paul is talking about this. You cannot get past it. There is a deeply communal aspect to the church. And since the church is a body, what one of us does affects the rest of us. You see, our culture tends to prize autonomy. We say things like it's good as long as it hurts no one else. But that's not true in the church. You see, Paul not only wants to restore this person, he wants to restore this church. And that's why he says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been what? Sacrificed. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. What he's talking about here is the Exodus story. Some of us in here have seen the movie, The Prince of Egypt. In that story, in the book of Exodus, we see that God sends how many? Ten plagues upon the evil Egyptian pharaoh giving him opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to do what? Let Israel go. At that tenth plague, God sends a plague that is going to kill the firstborn child in all of the land. And what is Israel to do? To be exempt from that? They take a perfect one-year-old unblemished lamb. They sacrifice it. They take the blood of that lamb they put it on the doorpost so that when the death angel comes through, he passes over their house. And it's after that plague that Pharaoh lets the Israelites go. And they are what? Free. Seven days up to the point of that sacrifice, Israel was commanded to do what? Eat unleavened bread. That means get all the leaven out. What Paul is basically saying to them is this. What the lamb was to the Jews, Jesus is to you. The Passover lamb has already been sacrificed and he's already raised from the dead. You should have been getting the leaven out. <laughs> so now, in light of who Jesus is, quit ignoring the sin and deal with it. In verse 8, he says, your old way of life, old leaven was described by what? Malice and evil. But when you go to that festival, you should be new leaven, unleavened. That is, you should be with sincerity and with truth. And that should guard and guide our ga gatherings. You see, the word sincere comes from a Latin word. It's a compound word that means without wax. And in the ancient world, dishonest merchants would use wax to hide the defects 
such as cracks in their pottery, so that they could sell their merchandise at a higher price. More reputable merchants would hang a sign over their pottery that basically said without wax to inform customers that their their merchandise was genuine. Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. He says this, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You see, what you and I are is we're flawed jars of clay. And what do we try to do as flawed jars of clay? We try to paint. We try to cover it up with wax, if you will. But when we do that, we're not really covering anything up. I would argue we're making ourselves more unholy. When I worked at a car dealership in Kentucky, I worked for my dad, and I worked in the body shop, and part of my uh, job was to drive the cars they just fixed in the body shop to the wash bay, detail those cars, make them look like brand new, bring them out, customer takes them home. Not a problem, right? Except for the pressure washer. You see, the pressure washer had a tip on the end that was metal. And there was one day this blue Ford Ranger with Tasmanian devil like mud flaps, which tells you where I'm from. I thought that was cool. I saw it, I drove it into the wash bay, and I was just admiring the car. And all of a sudden, I hear dink, and I went, oh no. I ended up putting a scratch about that big in the fender they just fixed. Now mind you, this was the third time I had done it. And so Rich comes from the back, and he goes, don't worry. And he pulls out this box of these brushes that look incredible. He's like, these are horsehair brushes. I don't know what they were. But he said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to fill in the crack. Then we'll buff it. We'll get it out of here. No problem. So Rich did it. And then he buffed it, the whole deal. It looked pretty good, right? Car sent away. About a week later, I think I am free. I come into work. Guess what was sitting right inside the parking lot? A blue Ford Ranger with Tasmanian Devil mud flaps. And what was exposed? A, a, a scratch that I put into it. You see, because it wasn't put in there right, it was just like wax, over time it started to fall out and it was exposed. You and I are jars of clay. But what do we have inside of us? Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He melts away all the wax. He exposes the sin in our lives as death and destruction. And it allows us to be truthful with the pain in our lives so that he could come in and fix it and the church can help as well. When you and I truly know who Jesus is and what he has done, we will no longer try to hide our pain and our shame, but rather we will bring it to the church so that the church can graciously and lovingly help us to grow. That our gatherings should be guided by what? Sincerity and truth. You see, Paul's desire is not just to cleanse them, but to transform them. And a church that is sincere and truthful will lovingly confront sin in the lives of others. And if necessary, they will mournfully but lovingly excommunicate willful, unrepentant sin. Finish it up. Paul wants to clarify the extent of of the judgment. Listen to what he says here. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people. The word he uses there for sexual immorality is porneia. It's basically a junk drawer word that basically means any type of sexual activity that is outside the Christian norm. And we'll talk about that here in a few weeks, so we won't spend a lot of time there. 
But look at the attention Paul is trying to make. Verse 10, he says, Not at all meaning the sexually immoral in this world, or the greedy and the swindlers, or the idolaters. Since then, you would have, or since then, you would need to go out of the world. He basically says, I'm not telling you to judge the world. If I was telling you not to have anything to do with sexually immoral people, sinners, greedy people, you would have to leave this world. You couldn't go anywhere. Who in here has seen the Netflix show Lost in Space? They think they're going to this utopia, but on the way there, they find out, what are they taking with them? A bunch of sinners. And so it's not going to be a utopian experience. The only way we could get exempt, I guess, from this is if Jesus was to take us out. But Jesus tells us, I didn't take you out of the world. I sent you into it to be what? A light. So he's saying here, I'm not talking about you judging the world. He says this, verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears what? The name of brother, that is a Christian. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Paul says that loving discipline does not extend to the world, but to those who bear the name of Jesus but are choosing to live in willful, unrepentant sin. Just like the prodigal son in Luke 15, what are we to do? Let them go. Let them go see the full weight of their sin and how it's going to leave them wanting. Paul says, don't even eat with a person. What does that mean? It shows acceptance. Who in here ever went to high school or middle school? We know what this feels like. You go into the cafeteria, what do people do? They eat with those who accept them or those they accept. He's saying, don't even eat with such a person. He goes on in verse 12 to finish it up to kind of summarize his whole point. He says, For what I have to do with judging outsiders, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Verse 13, But God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. If you and I were to go and to start judging the world by Christian standards, that would be the most ridiculous thing for us to do. Why? Because nobody outside the Holy Spirit has the power to even live those standards out. You see, if we were to impose these standards upon the world, we might be making a lot more moral people, right? Like right here, it just says this, even if we somehow successfully convince not yet believers to live as Christians, to live by Christian standards, without bringing people into a relationship with Jesus, all we've done is populated hell with nicer and more moral people. We can't do it. Sure, do we call sin, sin? Yes. But what would we do with people who are not inside the church? We share the gospel with them. We tell them about Jesus. But when it comes to discipleship and growth and maturity, we focus inside the church. Practically, this just means that we need to be a church. Two things. That is tough on sin while loving sinful people. That's what we want to do here. The most loving thing somebody can do for you is what that guy did for me at that camp. And I'll tell you, he did that in the most gracious way he possibly could as a high school kid to his pastor. But still to this day, I thank God for that young man and for what he did. But also what we need to be is not only tough on sin and loving towards sinners, but we need to see ourselves as missionaries in the world around us. You see, Paul ends this by saying, essentially, you're not of this world, but you're sent into it. And I think oftentimes what we have done is we have mixed up what we are to judge. 
You see, we're so tolerant of things in the church, but we're so intolerant of things outside the church. But what we have to start doing is flipping that around and looking at ourselves and lovingly start to confront one another. You see, we are not a church that is against the world, that goes and runs and hides. We are not a church that is in the world in which we're not distinct, but we are a church that is for the world. That is, we care for it and we engage it. And part of the way we do that is by being focused on our own holiness. I'll end it with this. Martin Luther says this. I just thought this was fun. He said, the kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. And he who will not suffer this does not want to be of the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among friends, to sit among roses and lilies. Not with the bad people, but with the devout people. Oh, you blasphemers and betrayers of Christ. If Christ had done what you were doing, who would ever have been spared? Essentially, who would be a Christian if Christ said, you know what, God? I'm going to stay up in heaven. I don't want to go down there with those people. Yet, oh, the grace of God that he would leave the comforts of heaven to engage in our sinful humanity, to rescue and to save us, to make us a family that would love each other even with tough love. Let's pray.